Welcome to Women Wanting Women, where we explore topics that matter to women like us. We talk about being a woman, attracting women, and becoming more powerful women by developing more self-confidence and always reaching for the next level in our self-actualization. I'm your hostess, lesbian love coach Jordana Michelle. And if you're interested in finally finding the woman of your dreams, so you can be best friends who learn and grow together, share dreams together, have adventures together, and share passionate intimacy together, then also check out my website, womenwantingwomen.com, because it's packed with free resources that can help you. For example, there are free quizzes you can take, including one that will tell you what might be standing in your way of finding love and another that will tell you what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her. There are free video tutorials you can watch that explain why women do the things they do and how you can navigate the frustrating world of lesbian dating with confidence, even if you're feeling lonely and desperate. There are free guides you can download to learn the secrets of how to avoid rejection, heal from heartbreak, and find epic lesbian love. And there's a free matchmaking survey you can fill out in case I already know the woman of your dreams. All of that is available now on womenwantingwomen.com. And if you want lesbian dating advice from me more often, follow me on Instagram at jordana.michelle. Also, If you love this podcast and want to help me reach more people, then spread the word by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, telling what you love about women wanting women and why you keep tuning in. And while you're there, subscribe and share it with a friend and let them know that hot lesbians are everywhere. But before we go any further, I have a question. What makes something funny? And what can comedy teach you about life? And what can healing as a person teach you about comedy? Well, we get into all of that and more on this episode of Women Wanting Women, where I interview my friend Becca Lennox, a stand-up comedian who talks about all the insights she gained into humanity from getting sober and learning how to perform stand-up comedy. You can learn more about Becca Lennox and her upcoming show schedule on Instagram at becca.lennox. But before you do, stick around for all the wisdom she brings to us here. Becca, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm excited to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. I always love our conversations, and so I'm excited to share this one with our community. Let's just jump right in by you giving a little background about who you are, what you do. Sure. So I live in New York City, trying to make it as a stand-up comedian, recovering lawyer, and I'm also sober. I've lived in New York for, gosh, close to 20 years now. And I'm, yeah, that's me. And we actually met in court, or no, we didn't, we actually met at a law school event once, but we did meet as lawyers in our former lives in that capacity. Yeah. But have stayed friends ever since and love seeing you on stage, love the comedy you're doing. 
So let's get into that. I think comedy is such an important thing to think about. We humans connect through humor, but I don't know that we always understand humor. And when someone decides to go and become a, a stand-up comedian, it gives you the opportunity to really think about this aspect of our lives and ourselves from an angle that we might not have otherwise thought about, right? Because how to do it, how to make people laugh. What's, what have you learned about humans and the way our mind works through studying comedy? Yeah, I mean, for me, comedy is tragedy plus time. And my journey to becoming a stand-up comedian really started in Alcoholics Anonymous and going into AA meetings, basically, and telling my story. And when I first started getting sober, it was a very... um, it was a really hard time in my life. And it's a time where you reflect on all these twists and turns in your own personal life. And a lot of bad things that people had done to me, a lot of bad things had done to other people. And in the beginning of that sobriety process is really examining all of that mess and then making sense of it and then taking responsibility for my, my part of that. But what I found so interesting and surprising when I first got sober was there was so much laughter in those AA rooms. Like people were telling these horrible stories where they've done terrible things with huge consequences for their lives that they're trying to unravel. And everybody, we're all laughing. And that's that's really what first clicked in my brain that tragedy plus time is what equals comedy. And not that I was trying to make people laugh in an AA meeting. Um, but there is something about that sort of gallows type humor. And I think people laugh when they hear those stories and, and people laugh at themselves when they're unburdening these stories because there's something universal in a, a lot of suffering. And certainly when you're in an AA room, everyone there has gone through something similar. And so I really found my comedic voice in AA meetings. And then on a whim took a stand-up comedy class and I was hooked. And that is, you know, this, there's certainly a lot to learn about being a stand-up comedian in terms of structure, writing jokes, um, how to perform, how to command people's attention on stage, sort of the business of comedy that happens off stage in terms of networking and producing shows and getting an agent and all that stuff. But I say that I, I, I'm, I'm, my comedy career really started in the AA meetings that I went to when I was first getting sober. There's so much I want to talk about in terms of AA as well, and I'm tempted to just go straight there, but I don't want to get off of comedy. What do you think it is about gallows-type humor that unites us so much? Yeah, I think it's the universality of, of suffering, and I even chuckle when I say that because it's such like a lofty thing to say, but the reality is that what sets us apart from, from animals without self-consciousness is that, you know, we can reflect upon the choices we make, the consequences and how they impact other people and humor at its very basic element is sort of observing the world around us and commenting and people laugh because they agree with your point of view. So typically you know, I think at the end of the day, in each audience is different and there are different types of comedians and, and different, different jokes will appeal to different people, often based on, you know, their own life experiences. But at, at the foundational level, it's, there's something in that joke that you relate to. 
and, and I like that. You know, I like that idea of like comedy is just another way that strangers can interact with each other, get to get a little insight into who each other are and find some common ground. And do you think that a big part of your comedy has been the interacting and having the people relate to you? Do you think that's a lot of what's causing the laughter in the room when you hit it? Yeah, I think so. You know, I have a, I, most of my jokes are very, they're very much entwined in sort of the twist and turns of my own life. And so I'd make a lot of jokes about being a bisexual woman who formerly identified as a lesbian. I make a lot of jokes about my, my alcoholism and the journey of sobriety. I make a lot of jokes about, you know, living in New York City and what dating was like for the last 15 years of my life in New York City. And now that I have a partner, you know, joking about a light part, you know, what it's like to live with someone and to be a step parent. And I think even though a lot of people in my audience might not be bisexual, might not be alcoholics, might not be in recovery, the struggles that I faced in those unique personal scenarios, hopefully I'm touching on sort of themes that are central to like being a human. And even when you have audience members who can't even exactly relate, if I'm doing my job right, they can see the humor in the story I'm telling. And I, th- there's just like not a better feeling uh, that exists as far as I know than standing on stage in front of 50 strangers and getting 35 of them to, to laugh out loud at something you said. It's just such an incredible feeling. Were you able to do it right away? Were you able to achieve that right away? Like, or did it take multiple tries or what's been your experience of like, do you see yourself getting better? Like how, what, or was there beginner's luck? I don't know how this works. Yeah. Well, first of all, what I think is really interesting is there's a lot of former lawyers who are stand-up comedians. So I think there is, and there's also a lot of like former actors who are lawyers. And I think that you have to have something in you where you kind of like on some level, even if you hate to admit it out loud, you like the spotlight. And so you've got to have that sort of little spark inside you that makes you want to get up on stage. But, but everyone's terrible when they start. I mean, I think most people who take a stand-up comedian class like I did feel like oh my friends think I'm funny like when I'm at a party and I tell a story you know I command people's attention I get them to laugh I bet it'd be a good stand-up comedian and that's definitely part of what makes someone good but that it is a craft um just like being a lawyer when you learn to write as a lawyer there's very specific techniques and phrasing and structures that you use it's the same in comedy comedy has its own sort of language its own rules about word economy timing um, the different types of jokes that exist so you have to learn those things to do well and I'm certainly still learning and will be for many 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 decades to come but yeah it's a craft so you know you don't start out great hopefully you start off so that you don't feel like you bombed and you never want to do it again. And then you just, it's like anything else. You got to practice. You got to log the hours. You got to do the open mics. You got to take the classes. You got to do writing workshops and join writing groups and just get on stage as much as possible. And as with any craft or anything that you have to learn to do well, there are probably lessons that you get from doing that one narrow craft that apply to all these other areas of life to make you better in ways you wouldn't have expected. 
Um, are there any rules or lessons that you've learned within the realm of comedy that have helped you outside to be better at other things that you do? That's such an interesting question. Yes, definitely. I mean, I think one thing about stand-up comedy that's a misconception is that, you know, it's all you, you're all alone up there on stage. And the reality is like everything in life, no matter what your accomplishments are, really there's a whole number of people that helped you get to where you are at that point. And so even though you may be getting all the glory on stage as a stand-up comedian who just did a really incredible 15 minute set where the audience was laughing the whole time. Um, the reality is, and, and I think this is true even for the most world famous comedians that, you know, everyone, you know, their names immediately come to mind. You know, you're, you're there because you've gotten great feedback along the way from writing partners. You're there because you had great tips from writing teachers. You're there because you went to a million open mics and got feedback from other struggling comedians. You're there because you've seen, you know, hours and hours of, of really great comedians working at their craft. So it's like, even though you're alone on stage and you're accomplishing something, really you're the sum of like all these people who have sort of touched your career in different ways. And I, I like to remind myself of that because so many people talk about like, oh, you're so brave to get up on stage all by yourself and there's no musical instruments, there's no other actors, there's no script, there's no, um, there's no teleprompter. But um, the reality is it's, it's, there's a lot of people and things that go into making a successful com comedian. Reminds me of just how interdependent all of us really truly are. Like every meal we eat, the amount of other humans cooperating and collaborating to get each pieces of those food items onto our plate and the exact combination that they're there and, and everything in our life, everything around us, we are so reliant on other people. And anyone, any one of us who thinks we're doing things on our own, but you know, we didn't knit the clothing we're wearing or, you know, build the structure that we're in. So yeah, it's a really good point. I like that. And it's, it's way more meta even than just comedy. So you mentioned, you know, one of your lines of jokes being about uh, your identity as a bisexual woman and uh, someone who used to identify as a lesbian. Uh, so let's, let's jump into that since it's obviously the perfect podcast for, for that kind of conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I first, what I think is so interesting about identity is that it, especially I feel like people in their 20s are teaching people in their 40s, like I am this, is that identity can be sort of fluid and always like changing and, and growing. And I, when I first came out as a lesbian in like the early 2000s, I, it didn't really feel like that was an option. It was kind of like, you are, you are, you are, you're either gay or you're straight. And I remember I was living in DC, had my first very serious girlfriend, and we were both, it was the first time we had dated women in a public way. We had told our friends, we had told our family, we were in law school together, and, and we were out at school, like all of our teachers knew, and professionally, you know, working in the summers. It was the first time I was out as something. And it's funny, back then, bisexual did not feel 
like a legitimate option to be, which I'm laughing because it sounds so ridiculous now, but over, you know, 20 years ago, it was like to be taken seriously. It felt this way to me, at least this is my experience. It felt like to be taken seriously as being out and in this relationship with a woman that I had to, my only option was to be a lesbian. And because of that, and then also because I was sort of transitioning into this new community, this new culture of like the LGBT, back then it really was just LGBT world. I was, I was feeling like I, I was, I told people I was lesbian and that made sense to me at that time um, as an identity. And now it's funny, I, after about 10 years, about a full decade of dating exclusively women, and I think externally, I, I became more comfortable with the idea of identifying as bisexual. It really wasn't until I decided to date men, give dating men a try again, that I really owned the identity of bisexual. And then, so I had sort of had to come out all over again, which was an interesting experience, e much easier than, than the first time. But I talk a lot about this in my comedy because there's so much, I mean, in many ways, the LGBTQ plus community is under attack in a way that it, it, after making progress for multiple decades, we feel like we're, we're coming backwards. But I would say that and culturally, where I live in New York City, there is a feeling that there's, in my experience, there's been a lot of acceptance for bisexual people and they bisexual or pansexual, you know, this is like the fastest growing segment of the LGBTQ plus group, just numbers wise. And that's really exciting and interesting, but also anything that's sort of new and exciting and interesting is great ground for comedy and I talk a lot about I have jokes about how you know men find bi girls really hot but they don't find women formerly married to women hot and how that's an interesting slice into this idea of what identities are really sort of broadly accepted in the straight world and which aren't but it's been it's been great to be able to make jokes about this this idea of identity and the different sort of cultural groups that I feel like I've participated in belong in have shifted from or into or away from it's been great and I, I you know a lot of my audiences my audiences just numbers wise don't necessarily include a lot of lesbians or don't necessarily include a lot of bisexual people but I think untangling this knot of identity is, is still interesting to really diverse broad audiences that that are not predominantly lgbtq plus no doubt and i'm sure the jokes land i'm curious what your experience was after you came out as bisexual having been exclusively with women for 10 years how did lesbians react to that oh i mean this was over this was i guess I think what year this was. I mean, it was about 10 years ago now. And I would say there are some lesbians who are, to me, were uncertain about whether I was committed to dating women in a serious long-term manner. And I think that's a question that a lot of 
bisexual women get when lesbians are deciding whether they feel comfortable dating a bisexual person. I think it's not, I won't date bisexual women or I will. It's more about, is this, is this person looking for the same thing I'm looking for? So I guess there's a level of skepticism there that I was met with. <laughs> I am. I agree that that should be the question, right? That really should be the question. <laughs> but I don't know that it always is. Right. I think women bring a lot of fear to it. Like, oh, God, like you could like men equals yeah. you will like men and leave me, which, you know, I don't think that those two, you know, I don't think that equates. And knowing you as my friend, I know that had you found, I mean, well, tell me, I don't want to just project. No, I think that I think you're right. And I actually think that straight men have the same skepticism and fear that lesbians have about it. So I definitely dated straight men who were like, ah, you were in, I was in two very serious long-term committed relationships with women. And then in between dated a whole bunch of women casually. And I, th I think when straight men heard that, dating history, they had the similar concern that some lesbians have, which is like, I don't know that I can trust that you're going to be satisfied long term with me because of my gender, my biology, my sexual orientation. So it's not just lesbians. In my in my personal experience, it wasn't just women who women who dated women who felt that way. So I think that anxiety is there on both sides. But yeah, you're right. If I had, if I had met the person at the right time, that was the right person. And they were a woman, I would be living with that person and getting married. And it happened that I met a man who was the right person, the right time that I love deeply and, and marrying. And sometimes when I've spoken to women who identify as bisexual, who are out in the dating world, but mostly dating men, what they've said to me is it's just so much because it tends to be a lot easier they end up dating more men than women but not really because of not wanting to give women a chance do you have any thoughts about whether it's been easier dating men or dating women or or the, like the the challenges of dating one or the other how do you compare those or how do you find that i mean if you think about dating as a numbers game it it is easier to find a date with a man <laughs> on a Friday night in New York City than it is with a woman. But I don't know if that's because, I think there's a lower barrier to entry <laughs> to go on a first date with a guy than there is with a woman. I don't think that's necessarily better or worse. I just think that that's the reality or it wasn't my experience. I always say, the way I say it is that women are pickier. When you say lower barriers to entry or entry, can you dive into what you mean by that? Yeah, I think men are more willing to take a chance on someone that they might not like. Seriously, they're willing to just go out and see if there's a fit. I also think that, you know, I don't want to speak on behalf of all men, but I do think that like men are better at dating casually. At least they were better at dating casually than I ever was. And because of that, there's just the stakes are lower um, and they're willing to sort of throw on a button down and go out on a date with a stranger on a Friday night and see what happens where, you know, I think in my experience and in, in, in my own sort of behaviors, oftentimes for me, I spend a lot of time thinking about all the reasons why the person I'm, I might go out on a date on a Friday night probably won't work out <laughs> rather than just throwing caution to the wind and, and, and going on the date. And I think if you have two people 
that are worse at dating casually. Yeah, that are worse at dating casually. A lot, le- a lot. You take a lot less chances on on folks. Right. You get two people overanalyzing on both sides, and there's more room for one person to psych themselves out. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I. I mean, I. I think that without stereotyping too much, the react like women are very forward thinking. There's an anxiety there. There's also planning for the future, which is a good thing. And, you know, definitely had first dates with women where in the first date we're talking about whether we want to have children, how many, when, sort of, it's almost like we're seeing if people meet the, the qualifications on our, you know, job listing that we have, as opposed to being like, is this a person whose company I want to enjoy and would like to spend another time, another hour of my life hanging out with next week. Do you know what I mean? And I get that there's a lot of pressure for women in terms of, especially lesbians who want to have children. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of planning expense and, and biological timing. There's a lot of factors that go into it. But I think that like that sense of urgency that a lot of women, and certainly I had for much of my dating life, takes away from our ability to like kind of focus on some of the the more subtle things that might be in the long run more important that you can find from sort of casual dating casually dating someone i completely agree with you i think you do have to strike the right balance because there is a even if it's even if we take kids and our biological clock out of the question out of the equation there is still the matter of how much it can hurt when we emotionally invest in someone and then it doesn't work out. Mm. There's often like a big hangover period, an adjustment period afterwards, which can be a big setback depending on how much you cared for the person and how much uh, feelings were hurt when things didn't work out. So if there's a woman who knows for sure that she wants children or she wants to live in a certain place or just very sure that this is where Mm -hmm. that 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 failure to live there would be a deal breaker or failure to have things go that way would be a deal breaker then it I can understand it making some amount of sense before diving in and making those emotional investments to at least understand that you're standing across from somebody that could potent that that you're not guaranteeing the emotional hangover because you've chosen someone that there is an, a built-in deal breaker with. Mm. So I can understand some amount of vetting in advance. But I do think that what you said is also true, that so much future planning, you you miss the magic of just what could exist between two people that you never even would have thought you were looking for and not even realize the potential. And you just you miss a lot of the matches. And I think you know, a lot of lesbians complain they just they simply can't find a date. And, you know, I wonder how much of that does have to do with just being too narrow in terms of what you think you're looking for. Um, And that doesn't require settling or compromising on important stuff, just being, I don't know, not letting fear and anxiety, like you said, not even allow you to just meet certain people or have certain experiences, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, I think that's genius. Yeah. So the other thing I think that is a challenge for women who want to date women is that so much, it, I mean, it's online dating is a great tool. The apps are a tool 
but I think so much, at least for me, um, of my attraction to women has a lot more to do with their attitude, their confidence, their sense of humor, the way they tell a story, the way they, they're physically in their bodies when I meet with them, you know, like what their body language is. And so little of that is communicated through photographs on dating apps. And for me, it was always, you know, dating women, it was, it's so much easier to tell if I was attracted to women if I just met her in person. But I'm not sure that, that if I was, if I was being too analytical, studying people's dating profiles, uh, I, I feel like you can't tell. And I got to a point in my own dating life where I just kind of started saying yes to like a broader group of people and finding I had some really incredible relationships that only lasted a few months, but that were still valuable and worthwhile with people that I think, you know, if I had just gone on my, and even some long-term relationships and the, current, the one I'm currently in is a good example of this, you know, someone that I necessarily, their picture didn't tell the whole story. And we live in such an image obsessed culture right now that that making that change in my approach to dating, whether it's women or men, really served me well. So what's the actionable advice on that then, that women be more generous with their yes swipes? Yeah. And not be so trigger happy on the no? Yeah, I think so. You know, again, people are busy, life's short, but I, I personally get a lot of energy and like, I like meeting new people. I like interacting with people. So for me, it wasn't a huge burden to say yes more and also to ask more, <laughs> ask people out more, you know, initiate on the app. And, uh, but yeah, I think we gotta get out of our houses. We have to get out of our apartments. I think that's a good, that's another good piece of advice for women is to ask more, just ask for, ask to meet up, ask for the date. And, you know, also in terms of swiping yes, I think one of the reasons, you know, we talked about this women having a fear of casual dating. I think one way to see the other side of that fear is say, instead of considering it casual dating, consider it, you know, being friendlier within the community and being more open to engaging with other members of the community. Becca, when we when we hang out, a lot of the time when we hang out is with our friend Irina, who the only reason we know her is because of a date that didn't work out between the two of us when we met up on the app, when neither of us are exactly each other's type, but we went out anyway, didn't really work out, but we stayed friends and have been friends ever since. So the apps can be great for that too. And, and so a benefit of being more open-minded isn't necessarily just the relationships, the romantic relationships that come out of it, but also friendships. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really good advice. Do you have any advice for someone that might be trying to make friends on the app yeah. to do so, uh, to like how to not, you know, how to say yes more without it meaning like, I definitely know that I want you because I think that could also be a reason women don't always swipe yes is fear of even, you know, having to reject someone, right? It's like, oh, what if I don't like them? Then I have to deal with the emotional discomfort that comes with letting somebody down. Do you have advice for how to navigate that? I mean, yeah, you got to get over it. I mean, I think all of us, we all just have to get over ourselves a little bit. We Ego gets in the way of sort of living our lives to their full potential. And whether that's not wanting to hurt someone else, which comes from a place of compassion or not wanting to 
feel embarrassment or shame because someone doesn't want to, to be in a romantic relationship with us. All of these things are little blips in the universe. They're barely registerable things. And that's not to say that people's feelings or emotions or disappointments aren't meaningful because they are. But one of the things that they talk about in AA is sort of meeting life on life's terms. And if your goal is to have like a long-term, meaningful, deep connection with someone, the way to get there is by going through this process. And there there will be times when you reject people and people reject you. I think your question about, well, what if someone doesn't like the idea of casually dating because they want to hurt people's feelings? To me, that says, you're saying no to that person before you even met them. So you should go with an authentic, open mind to a first date. And during the date, you realize, no, this is just a friendship. Then you just be transparent. You know, there are kind ways to tell people this isn't working out. Or I think you're great, but this isn't a con- this isn't a romantic connection. I wish you the best. If you want to be friends with them because you like them in that way, to say, but I would love to grab coffee as friends so we can compare dating stories together and lament about the process of being single in you know wherever you live. Um, but I think we have to just not let fear be the lead emotion in our lives, which is hard. It's easier said than done, obviously, but. Um, I think there's be open-minded, be clear and transparent um, and just keep an eye on the fact that like this is all, none of these rejections in the grand scheme of things are going to make or break you or that other person. Yeah, rejection is no big deal, broken hearts. Ultimately, they're nothing we can't bounce back from. Right. And usually what doesn't kill us makes us stronger, including getting sober. I really do want to jump into a lot of that. Are there more things to say about comedy or bisexuality before I ask you more questions about sobriety? No, let's head into sobriety. And then if comedy pops up again, it does. Right, which it might. It might. Let's start before we go too far just on what you mean by meet life on life's terms. Just unpack that just a little bit more. Um, One of the central themes of AA is that we really, we have no control over the universe. You know, the only thing that we have control over is our own behavior. So when we say meet life on life's terms, it's like, no matter, you know, even once you get sober and you're in recovery and you're no longer an active alcoholic, you know, life is still going to throw things at you. You know, like you're, your parent may die. You may lose your job. You know, your loved one may divorce you and your bad things can happen. And good things can happen. You'll get a promotion. You'll have a baby. Um, you'll, um, you know, maybe you'll meet someone who makes is a really, really great, important friend in your life. You know, but whatever it is, life is going to come at you, and you have no control really over anything other than your own behavior. And so, putting all that in perspective is, and having the tools to manage those emotions that come when there's life's disappointments, but also life's highs to manage your emotions through those things is really important um, for people who are trying to maintain their sobriety, but also probably important for everybody else too. Yeah. Let's talk about that because sobriety is all about letting go of, I guess, the main mechanism one has for coping. And then that must leave a lot of need for other ways of coping. So what are some things that everybody could benefit from knowing about that you learned through getting sober? in terms of tools for managing hard stuff in life? Yeah, so AA is a 12-step program. And 
sort of each step is centered around like a different central theme of AA. And the fourth and fifth steps are, I think everyone should do a fourth and fifth step, even if they're not in AA or not in Narcotics Anonymous, not in a 12-step program, because it's basically you you take out a notebook and you think back sort of to your earliest memories and you write down all your resentments, every single thing that has made you feel resentment in your life. And you kind of like work from your earliest resentments on and your early ones are usually about your parents. Like my parents was always late picking me up for soccer practice. And then when you're older, it might be like jealousy among your friends. Like my friend didn't have to pay for college, didn't have any loans. Like she just had it so easy, like that resentment. And then, you know, you get older and the resentments, they shift a little bit. Like it might be that like you think you didn't get something you were entitled to get. You know, maybe you didn't get it. Someone else got the promotion that you thought you should have gotten. And then you look at all these lists of resentments and you look for a pattern. You're looking for something that keeps happening. And each resentment is kind of related to something else. Like my parent was late picking up for soccer practice all the time. What did that cause? That caused a feeling of abandonment, a feeling of unworthiness. And then what I found, and I think a lot of people who do this exercise find, is that there's kind of a theme in their life that the resentments you have are connected to the same type of fear. For some people, it might be fear of economic insecurity. Like my dad was always losing his job. We had to move. And then later, maybe it's you're, if you didn't get the promotion, it's because you're, you resent that because you really needed that salary increase. And then you, set, you kind of see these themes. And then you realize that the way you're reacting to these things, which aren't necessarily caused by you, you know, if you're a kid and your parents are doing things, you didn't create that situation. But you see the theme of how you are being, you're interacting with life, you're interacting with other people, you're interacting with circumstances, motivated by the same type of fears. And once you kind of unlock that pattern in your own life, this happens to me all the time. I'll be like, like, for example, I have a nine-year-old stepson and you know if he's if I'm being if I'm particularly angry or irritated by something that he's doing or saying it's like wait what is this actually about because it's not really about the fact that he's being misbehaving or you know giving me a bad attitude what is this actually about and sort of when you unpack that you see the patterns you can kind of own your part in it and this is not just an AA thing. This is like part of Buddhism. This is part of a lot of like, like meditation practices. It's embedded in some world religions, but this idea of like being sort of, it's part of stoicism. These different ideas about how do we remove that knee-jerk emotional reaction from this and think about what's really going on. And living with less fear, I don't wanna say I live without fear because that would be a big lie. I don't think any, I think only the most enlightened people among the human race can live without fear, but really identifying the type of fear that you have that's underlying almost all of your emotional reactions to things. That is how I've been able to stay sober because I can face things, whether they're good or bad that are thrown my way. Um, by using this trick of unpacking what, what fear is driving the emotional response. So you write down every resentment you have, past, present, yeah. all of it. And then if you really spend time being real about what is probably pages and pages of notes 
deep within there, there'll be patterns. There'll be things that are all kind of caused by similar fears and similar pain points. And those kind of represent these knee-jerk reactions, these conditioned reactions, because when the original thing happened, the way that we started protecting ourselves, it's sort of, it's become like scar tissue and we keep doing it. And that is, sounds like a really great way to unpack it. Yeah. Do you continue to do these exercises with the fourth and fifth steps? Like, is this something that you did once and worked on for, like, worked on it for months and years? Or is this something that you do on the regular? It's something I do every time something comes up. So it's kind of like when I need a tune up, I'm like, oh, I'm really short tempered. Or maybe I have like a big thing, you know, maybe I'm having friction with my romantic partner and it's been going on for a few weeks it's like okay let's do a fourth step just about this and really unpack it um and I think the you know before I got sober I was so uncomfortable apologizing for things like I never wanted anything to be my fault I always wanted to be the victim in a scenario and like doing this exercise repeatedly the last you know several years has really made me comfortable owning my part when things go wrong. And sometimes my part is big. Some part, sometimes my part is little, is that I just, I refuse to let go of it. You know, sometimes, you know, the resentment, my part of the problem that I have to apologize for is, wow, I'm sorry, you've apologized, you've stopped, you've changed your behavior, but like, I can't let this go. And that's my fault. I need to work on that. Um, and sometimes my fault is that, you know, I'm, it's much bigger. It's that I've been unfair to you. I have not been home as much as I should be. I'm working too many nights in a row. I'm not spending the time listening to you when you're telling me important things that are going on in your work and your life. And I'm sorry for that. And I'm going to change my behavior going forward. But yeah, I, unlocking the ability to realize that you can own that you've done something wrong and you're still a good person. You're still, you know, an important part of a partnership if it's in a romantic setting. Um, it seems so, it sounds so simple when I say it out loud, but to be honest, like it was something I really struggled with without realizing that I struggled with that for most of my adult life. Yeah. I think it's so easy when we're facing our own mistake to quite, to feel like, oh, I'm bad and, and don't deserve to be, you know, this person, you know, to be in this relationship in this way or what, and that could be a friendship or anything or part of this team if it happens at work. I think mistakes can often make us question our worth. What is, for someone who doesn't know how to get to that place of understanding when they are in the thick of, of discomfort and shame from having made a mistake, how do you then get to the point where you can hold those both feelings at once. Like, do you have advice for getting to the place where you could know that you could still be a good person and a valuable member of your team or relationship or family in, in spite of those mistakes? For me, it really came from the practices that AA taught me. And then also thinking about, you know, the fact that some of the most interesting, accomplished, confident people that I knew in my personal circle were quick to take responsibility for their actions if something had gone wrong and how that was actually an admirable trait. Um, something that is appealing to be around, you know, if you have long friendships with people, friendships that are five, 10, 15, 20 years, I think 
either you've swept a lot of things under the rug during those 15, 20 years, um, or, you know, one of you is pretty good at apologizing, taking responsibility, hopefully both of you, and sort of moving on. And if you want deep relationships, whether they're professional, friendly, or romantic, you really can't have them unless you both are able to apologize, take responsibility, um, and, and sort of then release each other and move on. Because, you know, the fact that you can, most of us can write a list of resentments that we've been harboring since we were seven years old, all the way through, you know, however old you are today, shows that humans aren't naturally good at, at addressing the issue, like owning our part of it, and then apologizing, and then accepting apologies from other people and moving forward. Of course, this doesn't, you know, there's there's some people who this comes very easily to them. And then there's um, certainly certain scenarios where there are good reasons to cut people out of our lives. And not every friendship is meant to last 15, 20, 30 years. But, but, it, but for those deep, healthy, long-term relationships, you have to, you have to be able to do this process of acknowledging your part, apologizing for it in an authentic way. So it's vital. So I know about the list of resentments, but what kind of a list are you making when you're dealing with your own mistakes? Yeah, that's a great question. So the resentments lead to the mistakes because oftentimes if we feel resentment around it, there was some action on our part that that we can own. And then... The next part, which is the part that everyone outside of AA knows, is where you make amends. So then oftentimes you have this list of resentments against people, you know, your parents, past romantic partners, colleagues, bosses. You have this list of resentments. And then as you examine, you realize that there's behaviors that you engaged in surrounding those things. And then the next step is, so you sort of, you acknowledge your mistake. And then you apologize to the person that you've, been harboring this resentment to for your part in the issue. So it's called making amends. And a lot of people are familiar with that process. But so even though you've identified ways that these people, you have a resentment around their behavior towards you, you're going to think about what your part is, and then you're going to apologize to those people, you make amends. So, you know, for a parent who let you down, it's a little bit different. Because of course, when you're a child, you know, in my experience, my, my, father was an active alcoholic for his whole life and we were largely estranged from one another starting when I was 15 and sort of then for the rest of my life and due to his drinking he put me in dangerous situations you know drunk driving with me in the car neglected me you know didn't didn't when I was under his care you know not feeding me routinely you know like forgetting to get groceries you know, emotionally abusive, name calling, a lot of, you know, making, making me feel small, like purposefully. Now, none of that is my fault, right? But he died before I got sober. But if I were making an amends to him, my amends, you know, I'm not going to apologize. It wasn't my fault that his behaviors towards me were so negative. But what I might, what, what I would make, make amends to him was that I recognize that you have a disease and that you've been unable to manage that disease. And I'm sorry that you didn't get the help that you needed. And I have held on to this resentment against you all these years and I forgive you. 
for what you did to me. Now I won't have a relationship with you unless you're in recovery and making steps towards getting into recovery, but I wish that for you. And I hope that you find the same piece that I found in AA. So that'd be an example of an amends I would make to someone who let me down. You know, it's not an amends where I'm saying, you know, I'm sorry, I did this bad thing to you. It's a more complicated amends. And that's, you know, typically the amends we make with our parents are, are more, more about letting go of the resentments we have towards them versus an amends that I make, make to an ex-girlfriend that was like, I'm sorry for my part in our very toxic on again, off again relationship. You know, I'm sorry that at times, you know, the way that I fought with you was inappropriate and escalated the situation. And I'm sorry for the ways that I, you know, insulted you or made you feel less than. So that's like a much more straightforward apology. Because you've done your, because you can see so clearly how you contributed to it as opposed to in the, the and I'm so sorry, horrific stories about your father that obviously you had no part in contributing to that, but you can still say something like, I forgive you and I won't have a relationship with you unless you seek recovery, but I hope you do. I wish that for you. I'm sorry. And I understand you were unable to manage. That's really powerful stuff. What are some other, was there anything further on that? I mean, I, yeah, I think, I think getting sober was so, one of the things I loved about the, the journey and, you know, the journey of sobriety is a lifelong journey. Like my alcoholism will never be cured. So this is, this is, I'm every day, you know, I wake up and I'm in recovery and it's a process I'm working through, but in early recovery, one of the things I found so surprising was how many people had gone through exactly what I was going through. And I had so much shame and embarrassment about it. And I remember there's this practice in AA called qualifying where you're essentially invited to be like a guest speaker at an AA meeting and you tell your story. And I, I, the first time I qualified, I think I'd been sober for about a year. And I, I, one of the reasons that I got sober was because my drinking had become so bad, but it also, my drinking was causing deep depression or exacerbating a deep depression in me. And I was having really dark thoughts and I wanted to hurt myself. And this is something I had never told anyone really. It was this deep, shameful, scary secret that I was holding on. And when I was asked to qualify, I said, oh, you know what? I'm going to reveal during my qualification that right before I gave up drinking, I was thinking of killing myself. I'm going to reveal this. And I thought this was going to be so shocking. And everyone was just, you know, it's going to be like, all the music stopped and everyone looked up and yeah, was like, what? And in reality, I give, I give my qualification. I tell the story about how it was before I got sober, my process of getting sober and what it's like now. And I shared this deep, dark, scary secret about how I had wanted to hurt myself. And that was a really scary thing. Whenever I was drinking, I was thinking about hurting myself and that triggered me to get help. And I said that during the story and no one batted an eyelash. I mean, no one even, it was so normal and so such a common experience for people who are in alcoholism that I realized that, oh, like so much of what I'm going through, so many millions of other humans are going through the exact same thing. And that was such a good feeling because I wasn't alone. You know, I, I was going through this process 
And it was like, oh, other people have been exactly where I'm at or worse. And that means A, it's not insurmountable. B, I'm not as much of an outlier or a weirdo or like this unexplainable mess of a person than I thought I was. None of us are, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it brought some humility to me too. Like, oh, I'm just like everybody else in most ways. And um, that was like a really powerful realization for me because, you know, we take ourselves so seriously. And at the end of the day, you know, what is that childhood book? Everybody poops. I mean, <laughs> everybody, everybody falls in love. Everybody gets their heart broken. Everybody wishes they could change something about themselves. Everybody wishes, you know, like all these things that we, we hold on to and we're so... I don't know, we're so focused on them. They're really just like not a big a deal. And we can just like figure that out. We'd be so much happier, I think. And there's just probably something so powerful about releasing it. You know, probably if every single person went to somebody that they cared about and expressed their deepest, darkest shames, or even just to a perfect stranger, actually, even better, someone you'll never see again, just tell them all the things you're most ashamed of. And just see how the other person hears that is really so commonplace and normal. It would probably be quite right. healing for anyone to do. And that's actually one of the steps of AA. <laughs> confessing basically all the terrible things you've done in your life. That's the fifth step. <laughs> Which is why it's so many people who've been through sobriety, it seems like, then take it and go to higher levels of success than they ever thought they could even before they ever had a problem. Yeah. And it's because these tools are so extraordinary for personal growth. It's the sort of thing everyone should be doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it's like, it's interesting because a lot of this is, it's so much about examining yourself just so that you can end up realizing that like, you're just like everybody else in a way. And it's taught, it's really, I've learned to have like more empathy for other people. I've learned to be more patient in public settings, but it's just, it's just, it's so worthwhile. And there's so many distractions in modern life. You know, there's so much content always to distract us from having to be alone with our thoughts and ourselves, but it's, it's such a powerful tool to sort of face who you are and just and to live without fear. Can we talk a little bit more about what you meant by more patience? Yeah, Absolutely more patience. I think I I heard this woman in, at an AA meeting once say, I don't run for trains anymore. But now that she's sober, and that really resonated with me because before I got sober, I was in such a hurry, you know. I was in a hurry to find love and a hurry to get married. I was in a hurry to have a career that I could brag about. I was in a hurry literally everywhere I went, everything I was doing, this constant sense of urgency, really without purpose. And, and patience, you know, we think of patience often in terms of like patience for other people. And that is certainly something I've learned, you know, the person who's, you're in line at Target, and the person's taking away too long and fumbling for their wallet and, and, you know, having patience for that person. It's, that's an important part of making society work well. But also having patience for what will come is really important. And, and learning that, you know, as long as I'm doing my part, you know, I'm staying sober, 
I'm putting in a good day's work. I'm showing up for the, my loved ones, the people in my life. As long as I keep sort of my side of the street clean, the rest will come in the right time. And all the worrying or the wishing or the hoping or the wringing of my hands that I do for the future is just wasted energy. And that, that was something that I, I never could have worked on when I was an active alcoholic. You know, it was just a ball of anxiety and energy and stress and, and just so tightly wound up. And then throwing alcohol on top of that fire, <laughs> gasoline on the fire, just sort of deal with all those feelings related to the stress. So yeah, AA has taught me to be patient, patient on behalf of other people, have empathy for them, to not lose my temper when things take longer than I think, or I miss the train, or the person in front of me in line is taking too long. And then also patience for what will come as long as I do my part, which is put in a good day's work, show up for the people in my life, and stay sober. I love that. And as long as we're putting in our part, doing a good day's work, showing up for the things that matter to us, mm -hmm. we can trust that whatever will be, will be, and we can meet life on life's terms, like trust the process, kind of have almost mm -hmm. an optimistic attitude that things will go well. Are there any other questions I should have asked you that you think would be great to talk about, like anything we missed? Let's see. I just like to encourage, I think the important thing is I want to encourage anyone who's struggling with drugs or alcohol to get help because my life is 10,000 times, a million times, a trillion times better than it was when I was actively drinking. And so much of, there's such a barrier to getting help because of shame and embarrassment, but also because of this feeling, at least in my case, I had this feeling like, oh, my life won't be fun anymore if I stop drinking. I socialize with people to drink. I dance when I'm, I drink when I'm dancing. I, I drink at all these celebratory events like weddings. And, and I just felt like, oh, like life won't be fun anymore. And the reality is I have so much more fun now than I did then. And I, it would take so long for me to tell you all the ways that my life is better now that I'm sober. But to anyone who's like, just thinking about like maybe exploring getting help, I would I couldn't recommend it more. And, you know, AA worked for me. There are other programs out there that work for other people. And there are programs that are specifically made for just women. There are programs that are religious. There are programs that are not religious. So, I mean, there's there's all different options out there and they, they work for different people. But if anyone's struggling or thinking about it, I, I just can't recommend it enough. I wish I had done this 15 years ago. I really, I started thinking that I might have a problem as early as like my early twenties and I never really dealt with it and it just got worse and worse. And I, you know, I can't mourn the loss of that time. I have to accept that I got sober when I got sober and just make the, the next, you know, 40 years really count. But anyone who's even thinking about it a little bit, just, I recommend talking to someone. What's the first step? Who would they talk to? How would they find someone to talk to? Yeah. I mean, for my first step, I knew a woman who was sober and I didn't know her very well. She wasn't a friend. She was an acquaintance, but she was someone who was, you know, out about her sobriety. And by the way, it is very much, it's very similar to coming out of the closet. I had to come out to everyone I knew as an alcoholic, you know, and, and that was like a whole, very similar in some ways coming out as a lesbian or coming out as bisexual. In fact, people probably forget way more. They'll remember more that you're queer than they will that you're 
that you don't want that drink or that you don't, right? Yeah. I mean, it's funny being, you know, I, I've always passed, I guess, as like a heterosexual woman. And when I came in as a lesbian, I was, I would tell people all the time because I wanted them to know because looking at me, they couldn't necessarily tell based on the assumptions, you know, a lot of people make based on how we dress and how we look. So being sober and being bisexual is the same. Like if you don't tell people, they don't necessarily know and being sober is the same. You can't tell by looking at me that I'm an alcoholic. I have to, I have to tell you, but you know, it comes up so much more frequently in some ways <laughs> because people drink at funerals, they drink at happy hours, they drink at work, they drink everywhere. So it does come up. Um, and yeah, I, I think they forget more maybe. I don't know if they forget more, but it is, it's something that where I'm constant, con not constantly, but um, often I have to remind people that this is a part of who I am. Um, but my first step to getting sober, I had an acquaintance, someone I did not know very well, but she had shared, she was a pub publicly sort of out as an alcoholic. And I just sent her a text. I happened to have her telephone number. I sent her a text, said, can we talk? And she wrote back, sure, I'm free at 4 p.m. It was like a Sunday. So, you know, I, I called her and the first thing I said was, I think I have a problem. And she said, I know. <laughs> she knew. She's like, why else would you be texting me out of the blue? And then she told me where to go for an a my first AA meeting. And she said, there's one, you know, tomorrow at 5 p.m. at this location. If you go, um, I'll, I'll tell another friend who goes to that meeting to meet you outside. And um, and then I went to an AA meeting and I never looked back. Um, and it's very easy to find lists of AA meetings online. Um, just Google it. You can find one nearby. They're very welcoming places. Like I said, everyone in that room has been where you're at. They've done, you know, the same things, maybe worse, and they're there for the same reason. So it's a very welcoming environment and it's anonymous. So you don't have to worry about, um, someone seeing you there and then telling anybody else. That's like the central tenant of AA meetings. Basically what happens there and who you see there stays there. And then you just go. And then from there, the people in that room will take care of you. That's what happened to me. They, they took care of me through those first 90 days. Well, I'm so proud of you for everything. I'm so proud of you for getting sober. I'm so proud of you for the comedy you're doing. When you ran for office a bunch of years ago, I was so proud of you for that. You're amazing. I, I just feel so lucky to be your friend. Is there anything else I should have asked? Is there anything else you wish every woman knew? Hmm. <laughs> I mean, I would love for people to follow me on in my comedy career on Instagram. Well, that, of course. I'm not going to, we're not going to get off the podcast without sharing your stuff. But yeah, let's share your socials. But if you have any other messages afterwards, feel free to, to speak. So my, my comedy social is Becca.Lennox on Instagram. Um, and also Becca.Lennox on Twitter. I think, you know, I'm so grateful for your friendship, Jordana. I feel like you are one of those people who puts the work in. It's definitely so great to have a friend like you. And also the fact that you have created this incredible community of podcast listeners and the wonderful dating advice that you give to women who want to date women. I think it's just you know, you're making such an incredible mark on this corner, little corner of the world. And I'm just happy to be a part of it. And it's so excited to have had this cool conversation with you. 
You're the best, Becca. I'm so grateful that you joined us. And yeah, one more time, your socials and your website and... uh... Yeah, so folks, uh, if they want to check out my comedy, can find me on Instagram at Becca.Lennox. That's B-E-C-C-A dot L-E-N-O-X. Lennox has one N. And same thing on Twitter, Becca.Lennox. And if you want to, if you're, and if anyone's in New York City, I'm on stage most nights of the week. So you can find that out on my Instagram. And maybe see me there watching. Yeah. Amazing. This has been so great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Becca. Thanks, Jordana. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe, share it with a friend, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want lesbian dating advice from me more often, follow me on Instagram at jordana.michelle. Also, don't forget that womenwantingwomen.com is packed with free resources that can help you build your confidence and have more success with dating. While you're there, you can book a one-on-one coaching session with me to get my personal support in finding the love you long for. Until next time, keep remembering that hot lesbians are everywhere, that love is real, and that the woman of your dreams is on her way into your life in perfect timing. And I'll catch you next time on Women Wanting Women. <laughs>